Guys, mental health is something that Dan and I are extremely passionate about, which is why it excites us to say that we are partnering with BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and our podcast. BetterHelp is the world's leading therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BacksideGroundBalls. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BacksideGroundBalls. by Riverside. Welcome back to episode 96 of the Backside Ground Balls podcast. We're super excited to be back here. All-star break across the MLB, but a super fun time of the year with draft season being here. My name is Trevor Powers. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Dan Galati, as well as our producer, Phoebe. Dan, did we get to enjoy the draft weekend, the first two nights? And obviously, we're halfway through the day today. Yeah, yeah, it's a good time. It is a Monday, though, so I, I, you know my energy levels on the Monday are always the same. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm on vacation, so I'll, I'll hopefully bring the juice today and, and be able to to provide some of that for us and, and make sure we still have good energy there. But um, obviously, we're going to go through some some of our fun picks. We're going to have a nice conversation about, um, obviously, we saw some good trends uh, across the MLB with the you know, drafting of high school players versus college players. And then obviously, as always, draft community, you can't not do this. We got winners and losers. And when winners and losers come into town, uh, you got to make sure you got some hot takes ready for you. So Dan and I are going to provide as much of those as we can. But first, we're going to talk about the first five, right? Obviously, that was a huge talking point. I think as we kind of dove into this draft class and as we got deeper and closer to draft day, you started to feel like all five of those guys were really top of the line talent, top of the draft talent, no matter how much you're going to pay them, no matter what it's going to turn out to be. And obviously, the news came out increasingly as we got closer to draft day was that Dylan Cruz's asking price from the Pittsburgh Pirates specifically. We'll get a good idea of what his ask price was from DC, but he made it very clear that it was going to be a record setting deal and the Pirates didn't feel the need to go to that. As we creeped up to the, the draft, it sounded like a lot of Langford. The Pirates were playing some really good poker to manipulate some money to make sure that uh, Paul Skeens and his agents knew that it wasn't a far 
a guarantee that they were going to take him. Uh, it wasn't a surefire that they were, but as the draft started and we got to pick one and they came out and announced it, Ken Griffey Jr. did in style. It was Paul Skeens to the Pittsburgh Pirates, followed up by Dylan Cruz as the LSU Tigers and Jay Johnson are the first college team to have players drafted one and two following a national championship as you'd expect and then the surprise of the top five was max clark to the tigers at four wyatt langford then followed it up to the rangers at at or sorry max clark to the tigers at three wyatt langford followed it up to the rangers at four and then walker jenkins to the twins at five I know all five organizations are probably super excited and fired up about how this draft unfolded for them. But Dan, what were your thoughts as we got closer to draft day? And obviously with Paul Skeens getting the nod at the one, one slot. Yeah, I think you couldn't really go wrong. Those were the clear top five. We talked about it last week. Um, It was just going to be interesting to see what order we went in. I'm going to try not to complain too much about the MLB draft structure and, and why Dylan Cruz goes two because he wants a record amount of money to go one, whatever. Like that's, that's something we can talk about another day. Um, I don't really quite fully understand it to be completely transparent with any of that. But that being said, I mean, the pirates were in a win-win situation in the sense that, I mean, you weren't going to get any negative feedback no matter who you really took in this spot because it was pretty much down to Skeens and Cruz. And they get a guy in Paul Skeens who's the hardest, you know, one of the hardest throwers we've ever seen come out of college. He has some of the best command for a guy throwing that hard, right? I mean, you think some of the hardest throwers we've seen, you think Ben Joyce last year, Ben Joyce, you know, doesn't command the baseball the way Paul Skeens does. That's why Paul Skeens is a first round pick and Joyce wasn't. Um, but so, you know, they get a guy who potentially can be in their big league rotation. I don't know next year. I mean, it depends on how quickly they want to move him through the organization. You know, he's 21 years old. So it's not like, you know, you would want to, I would imagine if you're the Pirates, you want to get him there as quickly as possible. The Nationals, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a little bit, have, because Skeens goes one, they get to take Cruz and, and they've had an unbelievable first couple of days of the draft. And then the Max Clark thing to the Tigers. I don't know. I mean, I'm not as high on Max Clark as everyone else, and that doesn't mean anything because who am I to, to decide whether these guys are, are good or not. But if I'm the Tigers, I just – I you know, I, I've said it a million times. I'll continue to say it. I like college players better. And the Tigers, like a high school outfielder, I, I, again, I continue to try and understand where the Tigers are at and what they're doing, and I continue to just struggle to figure it out. Um I don't love that pick there. Uh, and then Langford to the Rangers is just such a, what a good fit to add Wyatt Langford and, and hopefully have him progress through the system rather quickly with the lineup. They're already rolling out there. I mean, that, that's a, that was a slam dunk for me. That was probably one of my, that was probably my favorite pick of the top five was when I saw Langford going to the Rangers. Yeah. I think the, the Max Clark situation, I think there's, I am high on him. I'm maybe not as high as because this is one of my philosophies when it comes to valuing players. I think sometimes we get caught up in position value, right? Obviously a guy who can stick at shortstop and hit or a guy that sticks in center field and can hit. But at the end of the day, we don't really 
lose sleep over the fact that Aaron Judge can't play center field or Bryce Harper doesn't play center field or any of these guys, right? We don't really sit there and talk about the fact that the reality of the matter is that if you can play and you can hit, you're going to be a valuable big leaguer and probably one of the best big leaguers in the league. So I think with Clark, you have the defensive value that he brings. He's a plus defender. He's got a plus arm in center. He's got plus hit tool, but the power is obviously lacking. So I am high on him. I think that he does have one of the best skill sets, at least the ceiling. If you assume that the power comes, which right now we're talking about as it stands today, the projection is probably 15 home runs. If it starts to get up to 25 to 30, you're starting to talk about a, a gold glove caliber center fielder, um, very similar, but more athletic and probably stronger, bigger than Pete Crow Armstrong, who's a guy who, you know, with the Chicago Cubs is, is a top prospect and, and should be in their lineup here shortly. So, I wouldn't lose too much sleep about being the Tigers. I think it's about preference at that point. Um, if you don't buy into the Langford, you know, just success, whatever you want to be, or you get a deal with Max Clark and you can move some money around, which as you said, it's, it, if that's a part of the play, you don't want to hear it at this point um, because that's the frustrating part. Um, but the most interesting thing for me is I think that all five, you, you were talking about how the Pirates were in a good position. I think all five would sit there and say that we're in a good position, right? It was the first time in recent memory that the top five went one through five. And I think it's because even the twins were sitting there going, Hey, we really like all five of these guys. It would take an absolute, you know, reach for us not to go for one of them. So we're going to be happy no matter who falls to us. And you could, I'm sure the twins are sitting there saying that could be their two right? That could be their one for all we know in terms of the way they value it. And then you're talking about obviously the Nationals. The Nationals were, were Paul Skeenger, Dylan Cruz, nobody the rest. Like, and each of these teams are able to basically have their pick of the of the litter at that point. Obviously with Paul Skeens going to the Pirates, we've, we'll probably have a conversation here at some point post-draft about the development of pitchers because we just saw Andrew Painter get shut down again. Elbow looks clean, but we're starting to see a guy that was a top 10, 15 prospects across baseball expected to break the rotation and he's struggling with health injuries. What, when does that come into play in your value? But obviously the pirates were comfortable with that. Um, but super fun draft, super fun top five. I think each of those guys have potential to be all-stars. I think each of those teams are probably super excited high five. And at the end of their, um, at the end of their draft when they submitted that name. And I also think the Oakland A's were probably the team that was screwed. Remember this, uh, we're supposed to um, prevent tanking with this move to go to a draft lottery. Oakland A's sit there at six and, and we'll get into what they decided to do. Um, but very frustrating, I'm sure for that organization, but who knows, they probably would have went for somebody that they liked that the industry didn't. But um, we'll, let's talk a little bit about our favorite picks, obviously outside of the top five, um, because those, guys for slam dunks to go in that in that range um and dan i don't know if you want to kick us off with your first one we'll kind of go we'll play a little tennis here it's wimbledon this time of year um so we'll play a little tennis here and go back and forth with our picks so you kick us off with the with the first pick yeah i, I the first one i'm going to go with here is thomas white the high schooler going to the marlins i mean you look at uh, you know, I think a lot of people would say that the Marlins need offense and the Marlins do need offense. But, you know, what we've seen the Marlins turn themselves into is they can develop pitching. I mean, if you look at their just their rotation right now, I mean, you talk about Sandy Alcantara, you talk about Braxton Garrett, you talk about Jesus Lazardo. I mean, Yuri Perez, they just sent down, but how good has he been? Edward Cabrera, all young guys who have kind of come up and rose through that Marlins system. Um, 
And so then the Marlins go out there and yeah, they need bats, but they double down. They don't even take one, you know, if they take Thomas White, but first they take a Noble Meyer. And it's like Thomas White being another lefty that's going to throw a billion miles an hour for a system who's shown that they can take young guys and they can, you know, avoid injury uh, and get those guys to the big leagues and get those guys to be really good big leaguers. And the Marlins, now you start to look at it and they still need help offensively, which they've started to do in the, in the second day here is, is get some offensive help, but like they are turning into a, an organization that you look at and you're like, well, they're, they're going to have a bunch of young arms at all times. And, and then what you can even parlay that to is when you start to stack all these arms up is you can start to trade some of them for the bats that you need, um, whether it be at the deadline or, or in the off season. So I really love that pick. I mean, you're talking about a lefty who can rush it up there. You know, he, he threatens triple digits. He probably sits in them in the mid nines, but I, I you know, I just really like that fit. I, I think that Thomas White won by getting picked by the Marlins, and I think the Marlins win by by getting another young arm that's going to throw it from the left side that's going to probably be in the rotation early. And that's the other thing. You know, you want to talk about why Thomas White wins. Like, this is going to be an organization who's not going to, you know, he's, they're not going to put a, a, a governor on you, it seems like, as they bring you along. You know, unless you show injury or you're struggling, like they're going to get you to the big leagues and they're going to, you know, they don't care if you're 20 years old. They don't care if you're 21, 22. They'll get you up there and they'll let you go. So um, I just think that fit is outstanding. And, and you know, it's fun to see these teams, you know, start to have a, you know, when they have a strategy and, and stick with it and they realize that they do something well, then continue to hammer it. Yeah, I think that Thomas White obviously he's a he's a big reason why I feel like the Marlins did have a really good draft and and specifically because they were able to get two um, ace potential high school arms and and kind of go after a demographic that some people are scared of and take guys that you know even five years ago would have probably fallen in the top fifteen of the draft they got them with drafting outside of the you know top 30 for their for their second one in Thomas White. So that's a huge value play there. For my first one, I'm going to go with Teddy McGraw to the Mariners. He was taken in the third round of the back end. It was about 92nd overall. And so many times we sit there and we talk about avoiding biases, right? Recency bias is such a big one. And, and a lot of that comes into play when it comes to injuries, right? And you think about Teddy McGraw, there's a lot of people within the Wake Forest community within the organization that thought he could have pushed Rhett Louder to be better than him, to be drafted as high as him. And obviously we saw the Cincinnati Reds nab Rhett Louder in the top 10 of the draft and a huge draft and huge pick for them. But you're talking about a guy that th features three above average pitches. He sniffs a hundred miles per hour. He's obviously a big bodied guy. Um, so you're able to kind of dream on that potential and you're getting a guy in the Mariners, right? The Mariners have Bryce Miller, who's a guy we talk about a lot this year who's a fourth rounder out of Texas A&M had a little injury history I wouldn't be surprised if Teddy McGraw has the same trajectory that in two years we're talking about dang they really got this guy at the back end of the third round that's a super impressive piece he's a you know he's a he has three above average pitches he's got to work on his control a little bit as a young guy he walked a little bit of more hitters than you'd think but a lot of athleticism there to kind of dream on and get to where he wants to be so being able to get him at the point that they got him is a huge pickup for the Mariners, and, and I think that he's going to be a huge piece for them moving forward. Yeah, Mariners have just done it. I mean, there's been a lot of teams who have been really impressive. Um, the Mariners have done a really good job with with what they've done so far. Yeah. And, and again, that's another organization who they seem to do well with, with um, 
with college arms. So taking the chance on him, I know he's, you know, you got to deal with the rehab stuff and you hope he comes back healthy, but they've obviously done their homework on that and they're, they have more information than we're privy to. So it's a good pick. Um, we talked about Langford. So I'm going to go Braden Taylor here to the Rays. Um, look, I said it before. This is one of the best pure hitters, I think, in the draft. Um, just when you strictly talk about the hit tool and what he can do and just, I think, how advanced his approach is. And then to put him in an organization where they turn these guys into all-stars, um, it's like just – it seems like a dream fit. I mean, you get another bat to go into that that lineup and, and you know, a kid who really didn't have many offers coming out of high school now is a, is a top of the draft pick and, and drafted by a team who is going to, you know, put him – I would imagine in the best position possible to reach his ceiling, um, which I think he's, he's a high floor, high ceiling guy, in my opinion, just because of how advanced he's shown to be at the plate at TCU. So for me, it's like, I think they announced him as a shortstop too, which I don't think he's going to stick at shortstop, obviously, because if no one knows the Rays have arguably the best shortstop in baseball playing for them and Wander Franco. So, but anywhere you put this kid on the infield, I mean, he's going to, he's going to swing it. And, it just fits the, I mean, a guy who's got really good plate discipline and you know is going to, even if he struggles in the minors or as he's coming up to to get on base and hit or even show the power at the next level with Wood, like he's going to get on base by walks. And oh yeah, he's drafted by the Rays who like believe in that and will continue to kind of nurture that um, plate discipline and approach. Just seems like a, a perfect fit for me. Oh, no doubt. I think when you talk about the Tampa Bay Rays, obviously anything they do, anything they touch turns to gold, which is something that we talk about a lot and and you trust their process and they're able to take guys. But I'm sure they were fired up that Braden Taylor basically fell into their lap at 19. They were probably expecting him to go between eight and 12, maybe at the latest 15. And they had probably scouted him. They love the skill set. They probably think they can get to his power more consistently. And they know for a fact that they're, when they they take him that it's just going to be a huge upside play for them at the middle to back end of the first round so for my second one for the second favorite pick here we have ty floyd to the reds ty floyd's a guy that we talked about a lot coming into the draft potentially creeping all the way up into the mid-20s was a lot of thought but as hurston waldrip fell and as the pitching class kind of started to take shape it started to make more sense that ty floyd wasn't going to be drafted in that range well the reds were able to nab him in around roughly around the 36 plus pick of the pick of the draft so obviously getting a huge value play there um, and I really think in combination with what else they've done they were able to get Sammy Stafura after Ty Floyd who's a guy who was mocked to be at the end of the first round, which is a huge pickup for them. Um, assuming signability is not a concern there, which is why he could have fallen. But if you can get all those guys in the boat along with Rhett Louder, I mean, Ty Floyd and Rhett Louder are both really projectable starters that you can imagine on in the big league rotation as soon as 2024, right? We're sitting, we could be sitting here a year from today and talking about Ty Floyd and Rhett Louder as in double A AA and triple A ready to kick down the doors for a pennant chasing Reds team that's stacked with young talent. And we're going to circle this date in 2023 as the day that they were able to formulate that. It's a guy who has two plus pitches. We saw the fastball, how elite it can be against a Wake Forest team with 18 strikeouts, 17 strikeouts and in eight innings, just complete domination. The slider's a plus pitch as well. Whether he adds a third pitch or not, 
we've seen Spencer Strider just dominate at the big league level. He Sunday, the day that Ty Floyd got drafted, he had 11 strikeouts over six innings, just can, continues to dominate and be an ace in the MLB with two pitches. There's no reason Ty Floyd can't have the same trajectory and assuming the command comes with it because he is an elite athlete he's going to be an absolute stud and he could be, I think he's could be the ace of this staff. And then you follow it up with Rhett Louder and not to mention Andrew Abbott, who's a high spin, high vert guy drafted in 2021, I believe. So you're talking about a guy two years removed, who's already been dominant at the big league level. It's starting to seem really fun. What's starting to build in Cincinnati. Yeah. And I just like that they haven't boxed themselves into, you know, guys who all look the same. You know, obviously Louder and Floyd do completely opposite things with their fastballs on the mound. And when you can, you know, when, you can, when you're confident that you can draft and develop both, um, you know, I think that's how you win. So, that, yeah, they, the Reds have done a great job. Just another team that's really doing a good job. But uh, lastly here, I'll go with Cade Cooler to the Braves at 70, the arm out of Campbell who, who pushes, you know, triple digits. We talked about him last week a little bit. And... <laughs> Look at what the Braves have done. They just took, you know, you talk about the Braves right now in that lineup, obviously, is on a record-setting pace. They're the best offense in baseball, the best team in baseball. And they have all those young stars on their in their offense, you know, locked up. Their younger arms have seen some injury issues. Some of them haven't developed the way you want them to. Now, you know, Schuster and Dodd, we haven't gotten too much of a look at. But you kind of look at it, and it's like, you know you have a sure thing in Strider. If you can get freed healthy, you probably have a sure thing. And then they take three swings on, like, high – stuff guys in Waldrop uh, who you were talking about a second ago that fell that like he fell to the Braves like what a perfect fall for him Drew Hackenberg from Virginia Tech they took with the 59th pick and then they take Cade Cooler a kid who pumps 100 miles an hour and is there some rel- reliever risk there yeah but he was the 70th pick so oh no we have a guy throwing 100 coming out of our bullpen eventually like <laughs> as long as you can keep Waldrop and you can get him in the zone which the Braves have always done a good job I do a good job with everything, you know, whether it's acquiring the talent through trades or, or free agency and, and developing guys like they're going to do a good job. So, you know, just kind of trusting what they do. And, and those are three great swings. And then yeah, they're loading up on arms in this draft. It's hysterical. Like they know they have the young talent. They don't need a bunch of offensive guys because they have it, have them all locked up and in the big leagues already. So they're just taking swings on the mound. And, and I really like it. Yeah, and they're taking educated swings. Like we could talk about yeah. organizations that don't take educated swings, whether they get guys with average heaters or average off speed pitches with good command and good numbers, whatever goes into it. Obviously you have to trust your scouting department, but each of those guys, Hurston Waldrop has an 80 grade splitter, obviously an above average fastball. If he gets the command down, you're talking about a potential ace and best pitcher in the class across all the boards, right? Paul Skeens, Ty Floyds, Rhett Louders, all of them. He could be the best of the best. He's probably got the best combination of stuff. And then Cade Kuehler has one of the best fastballs in the class. He's comparable to Ty Floyd and what that fastball can do. Obviously, you have a little bit of question marks because he was a small college pitcher coming from you know our neck of the woods at Campbell University. But fastball plays, he's a four-pitch guy. Slider's a tight, more gyro breaking pitch, but um, the changeup is really good when he commands it. It's pretty impressive stuff. And if he gets that heater going, he's going to be a stud. And, and for my last pick, I'm going to, I'm going to parlay two here um, for specific reasons for them. And it's Kemp Alderman going to the Marlins. We already talked about Thomas white being to the Marlins Kemp Alderman. He produced such high exit velocities this year when he reached his max exit velocity that it created a new um, 20 to 80 on the scale. 
right? For some scouts, if you look at, if you give your raw power by just based max exit velocity, you're talking about a guy who basically broke the scale and was pushing 85 because it was that good. It was that elite. His 90th percentile exit velocity is 114.4. That's unbelievable to think about. Can he get to it consistently? Well, I don't really care if he can get to it consistently now because you're getting that guy as your third pick in the draft for the Marlins. Ton of value right there. Huge pickup combined with the young arms that they get. If you can dream on that that power bat developing and him getting more consistent in the box, it's just unbelievable value there. And then Matt Corvath is a guy that the Orioles were able to get. We trust the I would trust the Orioles with any hitter across the board. It, they could take me in and turn me into a better hitter right right today. It feels like because they're that good at developing hitters um, and being able to get a guy who's a freak athlete. He can play center field. If it wasn't for Vance Honeycutt, when Vance Honeycutt went out, he was playing a lot of center field, showed a lot of power. He had 25 home runs, 21 doubles, 25 steals, just ton of, just put up bonkers numbers this year. And it kind of came out of nowhere, right? He was a guy who had a lot of helium this year and you can kind of dream on that trend continuing up. It's going to be a lot of fun to kind of see what Matt Corvath can develop into with an Orioles organization who has made a knack and who has made a a lot of success out of developing guys like Matt Corvath into stars, right? Into prospect stars. We've seen the development processes of all these guys, and you can definitely trust that the Orioles are going to put him into into a position to be successful. So Dan, any any last thoughts on our favorite picks or, or even the top five there before we get into a fun conversation here? No, I really, I mean, these the the six seven guys that we we talked about right here. Like, I just I like what a lot of these teams are doing, and I, it's exciting. I mean, this is the best time of year. So, like, this is just so much fun when you when you can start looking at, at these guys that we've talked about and, and followed throughout college, and then see what organizations they fall into, and then follow what the organizations are kind of looking at and you can start to see a pattern with what some of these teams like. And unfortunately some of them do a better job than others. That's for sure. Yeah. Some of them do. And this is a deep draft. A um, lot of fun, a lot of deep. talent. I mean, when you're getting guys like this talented in the third, fourth round, um, that would arguably assuming health and assuming success would be first round picks. That makes it a lot of fun. And, and obviously these guys are going to be going to affiliated ball in the next couple months here. So you need to link, link up with our friends over at SeatGeek and head out and watch these guys play at minor league ballparks across the country. You can head over to SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com and use a promo code backside ground ball to receive $20 off your first purchase. SeatGeek is your essential resource for live baseball. So head over to SeatGeek.com, use promo code backside ground ball for any of your ticket needs. So Dan, we were presented with a question uh, a couple days ago. We had a we had a, a listener of the pod hit us up and and wanted to talk about how surprised he was to see so many high school players drafted in the first round and then not as many drafted in the second. So I know we kind of talked about it in passing in the last podcast, and and I kind of wanted to get a little bit in depth, a little bit more in depth. We're not going to take an hour on this topic because we still have a couple more things that we want to talk about. But just the conversation that scouting departments have to have 
when they're factoring in drafting high school players versus college players and the changes of the draft over the last couple of years. So I'm going to point out a couple changes, at least in my mind, that I think have led to that. The first is the shortening of the draft. We saw this kind of come to fruition in the five-year draft of the COVID-shortened year and just how many college kids were drafted because you had to sign all your guys, you had to make sure you got them in the boat, and you had to make sure you didn't miss. Any colossal miss could handcuff your organization in a five-round draft when you're not able to supplement yourself with talent over the course of five to 40 at that time. And then obviously we've seen it reduced to 20 in the last two drafts or the last three drafts now after this year. And that has changed the thought processes that go into it where organizations have to be more confident with the picks that they're submitting, right? They can't just take a, take a leap on a, on a Kyler Murray, right? We've seen that. How many baseball or football quarterbacks have we seen drafted as pitchers? Guess who? All these things that kind of go into it. Yeah. Um, well, all these things that go into it aren't, happening anymore because you can't miss. This is an investment. You have to be able to make sure that your investments are more successful and less risk involved in that. And the other thing that we've seen is the the increase in analytics, the data, the information that we're getting more across the college game, right? All of these, it started a couple years back. We heard about the Houston Astros buying and withholding information because they paid for the track man at Vanderbilt. They paid for the track man at San Jack Community College, and they paid for another track man in the ACC across the country, right? And they were withholding that information. Well, the MLB obviously stepped in and said, well, if you get any track man data at a college game, you have to share it with everybody else. High school players and Canby Park in Delaware doesn't have a track man system, right? To, to so many people's surprise who have been to camp, the beautiful Canby Park. And being able to have as much information at your disposal, especially when we're talking about models, when we're talking about getting this information, you want to be as confident as possible with the pick you're making. And the more information you have at your disposal, the more confident and comfortable you're going to be to make these selections. So when we look at that as it stands this year, when we went through the first two rounds, first round, including compensation picks, including those the Mets and Dodgers who obviously got bumped a little back because of their going over the luxury tax and all the collective bargaining agreements, all of the, those picks involved. We had 18 college kids taken in the first um, in the first round and 21 high school kids, but that's with the caveat that 17 college kids were taken in the first 28 picks. So the true first round, it was 17. Only one college kid was taken after that before we started the second round. Then it takes a huge turn into the next 28 picks. We had 21 college kids taken in the second round with six high school kids. So Dan, obviously I have my thoughts. I want to get your initial thoughts on obviously what those numbers mean to you and where organizations are at in their thinking of trying to identify and find the best talent for their organization. Yeah, I think you you kind of nailed it when you said you have to be confident, right? Like when you when you make it when you're taking a chance on you know paying one of these guys and and selecting them and making the draft which eventually sets up what the foundation and the future of your organization is you have to be confident you have to be you know there is no such thing as a sure thing but you have to be as sure as you possibly can and as comfortable and confident as you can be and i think that's kind of the biggest thing and when you look at it you know no matter 
how many circuits or you're playing for Team USA or whatever you, it may be that you are as a high school kid, you're still not <clears throat> facing the everyday competition of a kid from the SEC, a kid from the ACC. It just doesn't matter. You know, you're still facing 16 and 17 year olds. And sometimes like an, the situation of a Max Clark from May, from March till May until he gets onto the summer circuit, he is so much better than the kids he's playing in the state of Indiana in high school baseball that it's not even close. Whereas from February to the end of, you know, till the end of the, the playing season in August, Dylan Cruz is facing kids who are much better. Right. Like throughout the whole year, you're watching Dylan Cruz have at bat. So you're getting just so much more data against guys who are closer to the talent level that you're looking for than you are for the high school kids. Also, when you're talking about why so many are taken in the first round and it drops off, those guys that are taken in the first rounds are the elite of the elites. They are the Max Clarks and the Walker Jenkins of the world who then do go to these play for Team USA and they still are, you know, the best players on the field. Right. Every single one of those guys that are taken at the top. And then that number thins because there just isn't a sheer amount of those high school players who are ready to take that step in the rounds, you know, two through, you know, 20, as there are in round one, like you have a smaller um, sample size or not sample size, you just have a smaller total number of kids who are able to, to play at the next level. By next level, I mean professionals. Um, then you do college kids, right? When you have these college kids who are already 21, 22 years old, and the shortening of the draft is certainly heightened that. Um, as just from the high school level, because now these kids, they're more incentivized because of the amount of money, you know, you're more likely to turn down a hundred K and go to college and try and get yourself better and bump yourself up. I mean, think about it, right. And the, the first round, the last pick of the first round, Bryce Matthews, the technical first round this year, um, Bryce Matthews is going to, that slot value is what? 3 million, just under two, eight. Is that right? Around there. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm a high school kid who's getting taken in the 13th round and I'm getting, you know, what, under 100K, which one do you think I'm going to go to, right? Like I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna go to college and I'm going to hope to hop up into that first round and develop and become a 21-year-old who can be the next Dylan Cruz and make a ton of mo more money. So I just think it's all those factors kind of combined that goes into it, um, just from right down to the teams needing to be sure that the amount of players that you have available to draft that you could even consider drafting in high school and college when you get deeper into the draft is, is um, a lot bigger. And then the money for the high school kids, you know, you, you also don't want to draft a kid who's then going to be like, no, I'm going to go to college. You'd like to avoid that if possible as a team. Yep. Sure. You'll get comp for it the next year if you don't sign them, but like you would like to get, you know, you go in with a plan, you have a draft board, you like to select those players and then have them come into your organization that summer. You aren't picking guys that you don't expect to be in your organization. You're picking right. them because you like them, exactly. right? Like even even in the tenth, eleventh, twelfth rounds, like those guys are picked because you think they're going to bring your organization value. You don't pick them just to be like, well, we hope they don't sign so we can get the two hundred fifty seventh pick of next year's draft. That would be ridiculous. Um, but the, the <laughs> best part and, and one of the most important things that I want to highlight in what you said is the point of when you talk about the high school kids that are drafted in the first round, I think when organizations look at these guys, you can't, and I'm sure there's some organizations that will, you can't pass on a Walker Jenkins and just completely blow them off, right? These guys that are first round talents that you can see, you can't be like, ah, like I'm not going to take that risk because he's a high school player. And we hope that we can get him to college and see how he develops and, and whatnot. No, because that is the elite difference maker in your organization that you need to at least consider. Everybody outside of that first 35, 50 that you have, there's going to probably be question marks 
at least in some capacity of there's a reason why they're not top 50, right? Is it athleticism? Is it strength? Is it, you know, defensive position? Is it, you know, just big, strong kid that's better than everybody? How are we going to see when he faces competition in its own? And those are guys that you can pass on and say, you know what? I want to see something later. And there are organizations that do take shots at these guys. You see it with the Padres. You see it with the Royals specifically as two organizations that are like, nah, screw it. We still like our high school players. We trust our evals. We trust the information we're getting from our scouts. Let's go take a take a shot at them. And the Padres have had a ton of success with that. Adrian Prowler and company have nailed their draft picks with James Woods of the world um, and obviously Mackenzie Gore, all these guys that they've taken that are high school talents that develop into really good major leaguers potentially or top prospects. But, you know, big picture wise, I think that you just look at, at organizations. And the other thing that we have to factor in is how good player development is across college baseball. I think this is one thing that doesn't get enough credit to the division ones of the world, right? Paul, Jay Johnson was on the call last night on, on MLB network with the, with the crew. And he talked about, we want to be a player development factory for the MLB specifically. And there's nothing, there's no better selling point than one and two in the draft. Right. And there are so many schools across the country that have resources that have, you know, like at Wake, you can go to a pitching lab at the drop of a dime. In Round Rock, Texas, you can't. They don't have a pitching lab on site, right? These pitching labs are probably at the spring training home in Peoria or West Palm Beach, and you have to fly them back and you get, you know, you have to step away from the team. You have to step away from the grind. At these college schools, these programs that have these elite resources, Rhett Louder's pitching on a, on a, you know, on a pitching, uh, in a pitching lab, every bullpen, if he wants to, they're shaping his pitches, they're working on his stuff. Not to mention the freshmen that might not throw big innings for the LSUs of the world, for the Wake Forest of the world, for the, you know, all these top teams across the country, Arkansas, we could go on for days that have elite player development. They're not getting big time innings, so that's more time to train, right? It's the first true weight training that they're going to get. It's the first true coaching that they're going to get. It's the first development that they're going to get at that magnitude. So now if I'm an MLB organization and I have even one question mark about a kid, right? Like even like you're saying about Max Clark, competition question, strength question, right? He's a strong kid. Can he get to power? Let's just say he was falling more in that 35 to 50 range. And you didn't want to pay him top dollar to get him because he's asking for a couple mil. Well, you let that kid go to college. And if he goes to Vanderbilt and wins SEC player of the year twice, a la Dylan Cruz and puts up 460 with power and all these things that's really fun and really in place center field shows he can do it. Guess what? That kid's making 10 million at the drop of a dime and every organization's drooling over him. So I think organizations are comfortable skipping that guy in the 35 to 50 range, letting him go to college and then allowing them to get three more years of information, three more years of development because for every Dylan Cruz that turns down the draft coming out of high school, there's a guy who turns down the draft and then gets drafted in the 12th round, right? There's a guy that, you know, withdraws his name from the draft and he's a top 50 prospect and he never pans out in college because he doesn't physically develop. He doesn't perform as well as MLB organizations hope. He doesn't have the maturity to have success at that level in baseball and outside of baseball. So there's so many factors that go into it. And MLB organizations basically have this crash course of college baseball to expose these prospects to and then be able to turn around and just say, well, if they made it, 
sure, that's great. Now we'll invest our money in them. But if they don't, at least we didn't invest multi-millions of dollars in that guy. When we have a college guy who we've seen have success in the SEC, who we've seen you know, on TrackMan and Synergy four million times, right? The difference between, you know, even a Josh Noth, who's a, p- a pitcher who was drafted by the Brewers, high school pitcher from the Northeast, you know, he might have some TrackMan information because he's thrown at Kerry, he's thrown at PG National, he's thrown at all this stuff, but he's got what? 375 pitches recorded on TrackMan? Teddy McGraw, even though he it's missed bad. a year, has 3,000 pitches recorded on TrackMan. Probably more, not to mention the data that Wake Forest has on him from inner squads, because these MLB organizations can get inner squads, scrimmages, anything you want. They got it because every because every organization in college has TrackMan at their programs now, and it's invested in by the MLB organization. So they have so much more information. So if you're splitting hairs over a Josh Noth or a Teddy McGraw, it's a lot easier to make that confident decision. And Noth got picked ahead of Teddy McGraw, so it's not like it's a surefire thing, but just trying to use a high school example versus a college example, it's a lot easier to have confident when you have 3,000 pitches to recall on movement profiles, what they do, swing and miss rates, command of those pitches, than 375. Yeah, and, and, and again, competition level goes into that as well. And, and then also, you know, if you're at a school like Wake Forest, you're getting every type of metric that, you know, you, you're getting a whole biomechanical breakdown. I'm sure Wake Forest will give you if you're calling and asking for it. You know what I mean? Like you can you can yep. see what they're doing on force plates and you can make a selection based off that if that's what you're, you know, what you're looking at. If that's the difference between what you can't get from a high school guy. And, and yeah, you know, you could people could sit there and say, well, why wouldn't I take Max Clark? Because I might not be drafting in the top three when he goes to college and does that. And it's like but th- there's no guarantee that he does go to college and do that. Um, so that's yep. why if you did have him ranked thir- in your scenario, if you did have him ranked 35 to 50, you just take the shot on the college guy that you have the more information on. It's just the, it's the better bet. And and again, the maturity thing factors into it, too. Just, you yep. know, outside of, of even the bait, just like. You're talking about the difference between a, a 17, 18 year old and a, and a, you know, a 21 or 22, 23 year old person. Like, just think about your own growth as a person in those years, how different you were from those ages until, you know, you're 21, 22, physically, mentally, emotionally, everything. So, you know, that factors into it, too, because, you know, I don't know if anybody doesn't needs to hear this, but being a minor ligger isn't glamorous and it, it takes a lot to get through that, like just the outside of the fact that you're facing the best competition you've ever faced once you get there outside of the fact that everyone's you know has the same goal of being one of the 26 guys on the major league roster it's also like not a lavish lifestyle that you're going to be living and you have to you know you have to have the mental fortitude to, to be able to handle that to even get through it and be able to develop once you're in a minor league system and that's a lot harder for a 17 or 18 year old who most of these kids haven't been away from home for that long now they're living with six other adults they're riding on a bus. They're not getting their meals cooked for them every night. Like th- that all factors into it when you're making these decisions. And that's a little more nuanced, obviously, um, when yeah. you look at that. But it, it certainly plays a part. It does. It does. And, and even college guys can't handle that, right? Like, you know, the, the LSUs of the world, trust me, their spread's better. Paul Skeen's spread in, in Baton Rouge after, after a Saturday game is a lot better than the, the spread that he's going to get in Altoona, Pennsylvania when he's, when he's debuting and throwing the rock for them. 
and Dylan Cruz, the same thing in, in Fredericksburg compared to, you know, even when they were in Omaha. So there's more funding in LSU's baseball program than there is in college baseball. So we don't even know how they're going to handle it, right? Like these guys could crumble under that pressure. Even guys as mature as 21, 22 year olds that have been through the grinder that have, you know, experienced the highs and lows and developed physically. You don't know how they're going to handle that and the maturity that it takes is far from a guarantee. Um, but, uh, Dan, so I was at the Yankees game yesterday and we don't need to get into the story of how fun of a day that was for me, um, because it was a, a long one. It was a meat grinder for me, but you know what I saw around the stadium a couple times? Hopefully some routine gear. Yes, it was. And we're super excited to announce our partnership with Routine Baseball. Routine Baseball is your resource for all your clothing needs. Routine Baseball offers a ton of options from shirts, hoodies, shorts, sunglasses, and any baseball style you could imagine. If you're interested in anything from Routine Baseball, which I can't imagine why you wouldn't be, the swag is so good and Dan wears it all the time. I got mine still on the way. We're working on getting that out, getting some some good stuff, good pictures out. We wear it for the podcast all the time. You head over to routine.com slash backside ground ball and check out all the different options they have and receive 10% off your order today. Again, that's routine.com slash backside ground ball and check out all the different options they have and receive 10% off your order today. So Dan, you want to do some winners and losers here before we get out out of here yeah let's get into it do you want to start good or do you want to start bad let's let's go win let's go winners first okay so we'll end the end the podcast on a negative note i like that um so winners my first winner we talked about them a little bit in detail here is the miami marlins Miami Marlins were able to nab Noble Meyer, who has two above to plus average pitches um, in his fastball and his slider, arguably one of the best breaking balls in the class, high spin, high vertically moving fastball, and then followed up with a lefty arm in a class that had no lefty arms. We It's the first time in draft history there were no college lefty arms taken in the first round. Being able to follow Noble Meyer up with him, that's two potential top of the rotation arms, high octane, high velo guys, good fastballs, obviously freak athletes and then the guy i love is kemp alderman right if you can get him in the middle of your lineup and develop him into the stud that he has the potential to be and that he's developed into i mean that those three alone is just a money draft for the miami marlins they are doing a great job in identifying talent and finding what fits for them and it's been super impressive what the marlins did and and obviously those three picks specifically were why i thought that they were definitely a huge winner for this this year's draft Yeah, I mean, the Marlins, they, they did a great job, and, and we've been critical of their front office, so it's nice to be nice to them for once here on the pod. Um, I'm going to go with the Reds here. Um, you mentioned Ty Floyd. You mentioned Rhett Lauder, Sammy Stafer, uh, even Hunter Holland. What the Reds have done, I mean, we they've become like America's team kind of um, because they've been so fun and young and electric on the big league field, and they are now just – they continue – like when they started the rebuild, it kind of felt like – they didn't have a direction, and then recently in the past couple of years, they've just continued to hit it out of the park. And you look at what they've done so far in the draft here through, I think we're through 10 rounds now, and uh, they just continue to build that system up, and it, they continue to have the success rate that it looks like they're having right now with that crop that that's up in the big leagues and, and all making their debuts this year. Like The Reds are really setting themselves up to be – 
the best organization in the central potentially um, and one of the best in the national league. So that's, that's kind of a change of tune from certainly five, six years, seven years ago. So uh, it's been exciting to watch what they've done. Yeah. I think the reds, the Luis Castillo trade was really one of the, the first times that I was like, they're doing something here. Um, they're really making moves and being able to get not even Noel V. Marte, it was the other pieces. And that's when you know the health of an organization when they can un- identify guys like Connor Phillips, who's striking out like two per inning in the minors right now and seems to have a lot of helium to be a top 100 prospect and be able to identify guys like that. That's when you know you're really healthy as an organization. And they're starting to become that organization that where we just trust their decisions, right? I don't know if they had a change of management. I don't know if they had a change of of decision makers, scouting director. I don't know what's happened over the last really year and a half because I, I guarantee if we were having this conversation pre-trade deadline last year, we would have a ton of question marks about what they're doing. They got Andrew Abbott. They got obviously Ellie De La Cruz. They got Matt McLean. They've got the young bucks, obviously that have been in the big leagues and Jonathan Indias of the world. Connor Phillips is coming. Now you throw in Rhett Louder, Ty Floyd, Sammy Stafura, who was a first round mock guy and Hunter Holen, who has a ton of just elite stuff. You're starting to see the foundation of an organization that just is healthy. It's the health of the organization. And that's what's super exciting about the Reds. And another team that I think is a huge winner. And it's we're starting to get to this point with the Orioles. I think we're past this point with the Orioles where you just trust what Michael Elias and company is doing. When they when I heard Enrique Bradfield called in the first round, I was surprised because there were some guys that they had had success with available. The art Arjun Namala of the world, the Colin Alks of the world, and all of those guys that are just these prep bats that are able to develop in the Orioles system. And they go with Enrique Bradfield, which doesn't exactly fit their mold. They like to see some present power. But then you start to factor in why they made that pick, right? You're talking about building a championship contender. You're not talking about finding necessarily the best, highest ceiling prospect all the time. Enrique Bradfield, Michael A. Taylor had a 3.6 wins above replacement last season. He hit like he had a weighted runs created of 79. Like he's a below average hitter, but he still brings so much value. Enrique Bradfield is safe bet to come in, play elite defense in center field, steal your 30 plus bags if he can get on base enough and just be a dynamic talent. Like I love that pick for the Orioles because now you're starting to see that roster take shape at the big league level mixed in with the talent that they have, which brings me, obviously I love Matt Corvat, that talent, they're going to develop him. But Jackson Baumeister and Kiefer Lord, what's been the knock on the Orioles? And even if you open up their MLB.com top 30 prospect list, there's not very many pitchers in their top 30 we're talking about. We're not talking about their top 10. We're not talking about their top five. We're not even talking about premium pitching. We're talking about pitching talent in general. I've always had faith in Michael Elias and co to make it work with their pitching talent. I know for a fact that they're going to make the right decisions because if you can develop hitters, I believe you can develop pitchers, even though the brewers would completely um, void that argument because they can't develop hitters for whatever reason. But I trusted that if we gave them time, the Orioles are ahead of schedule. If we gave them time, the pitching development would catch up to their hitting development. Well, what does Jackson Baumeister do super well? He spins a heater. He has a banger curveball, great changeup, lacks command. You're one coach from fixing that kid to be a top 50 prospect right away. You're talking about a guy at Florida State who punched out a ton of tickets. He's a stud on the mound. Kiefer Lord, 
Anybody heard of um, Mason Miller, who's made his debut with the Oakland A's this year? D3 guy transfers to a D1, continues that upward trajectory. Kiefer Lord has one of the best sliders in the class. He's mid-90s fastball. He's going to be a good pitcher at the big league level if he develops. And they're starting to take flyers, right? When you talk about draft thought processes, it's identify the hitters early and then identify the pitchers late that have outlier stuff. The Seattle Mariners have done this better than anybody as of late, identifying pitchers later with outlier stuff and being able to put them in a position to be successful. The Orioles are starting to do that, mixed in with their already elite player development on the hitting side, and watch out for the future in Baltimore because we already knew it was promising. If they start to mix in developing a Baumeister and a Lord along with a Grayson Rodriguez, you're talking about a team that perennially is going to be fighting with the tops of the tops in the AL East. Yeah, I feel like they could pick anyone, and just because of the trust you have for Mike Elias and, and Sig, you would just go ahead and say, yeah, it's a good pick. But then they go ahead and they take Teddy Sharkey in the seventh round, and it's just another one of those guys with, like, stupid stuff, right, as an outlier stuff that you're talking about. Um, I'm going to go with the Nationals next. I mean, obviously, when you, you have the chance to go get Dylan Cruz and you do it, it's, you know – you're a winner automatically because Cruz has been one of the best prospects we've seen for the last three years. I mean, coming out of high school, he was one of the top prospects in the country. He goes to LSU, uh, wins a national championship. Everybody knows the story. And, and, and then that, he falls to the nationals, you know, they sit there at two and they end up with him. And then they take a swing on Johanny Morales, who had a little bit of a disappointing showing at, at team USA earlier this summer. But I'm, I'm, I think that it's just a great swing, right? Like go, go, Take a chance on a guy who can be an impact bat if you can cut down on the swing and miss. And then they get Travis Secor with the first pick of the, of the second day today. And this is a guy who, like, look at what they're taking. They're taking guys, like you said, why you just lauded the Orioles is you take guys with outlier stuff. Here's a kid who's a high schooler who's six foot five, throws a million miles an hour. He's the hardest fastball of any of the prep pitchers in the class. You know, I think some of the concerns there obviously are, are, are with his the fact that he's 6'5 and he's still young and, he, and he's still learning how to move his body. If you watch him throw, it's just a ton of moving parts, which can sometimes affect command because it's hard to be you know repeatable until you really have full kind of control over it. But for the Nationals to go out there and just even those first three and then and then they go and they take two two college guys who are, are they feel like surefire things and Andrew Pinkney out of Alabama uh, who just is tooled up, especially on the defensive side of the ball, but also had a great offensive career. And then Mr. Clutch, Gavin Dugas, who meant so much to that LSU program and hit a ton of clutch homers who's shown prep power. Um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how he transitions to wood, but I, I think the nationals have really built it up and they have some good young pitchers already in the big leagues. They have a couple more coming. And then you start to look at some of their offensive prospects like Andrew Wood some of these other guys, you know, Cruz now and Morales and Pinkney, it's like that they're build, they're starting to build that thing back up. And, you know, it hasn't been that long since they were loaded up with talent before. And they're, they're early on in this rebuild. And just between the Soto trade and what they've done so far in this draft, they've set themselves up to be in a good position moving forward. Yeah, and the Nationals need to fix their player development next. Um, I think their player development is lacking behind their decision makers, which again, it it all falls on his plate in Mike Rizzo. They need to get some people in that organization that are going to be understanding. Like I think in terms of minor league home runs, they are like way, way behind the average in terms of what their teams hit on average. And yes, they play in, in Wilmington now, which is a absolute graveyard, but you have to consider – 
you can draft as much talent as want, want Travis Sakura. You can draft Yohani Morales. You could even draft Dylan Cruz and mess this up, right? You could draft the safest of the safe guys and mess it up. So if their player development comes in play on top of their drafting and their identifying of talent, they're going to be in a really good position. And even getting Andrew Pickney and Gavin Dugas, who since they nabbed Sakura, you know those are going to be underslot deals, probably big time underslot deals. Those are the talents you want to take a shot on, right? They reach for Pickney, but Pickney had one really good year in the SEC. He's tooled up, big power, big arm, a lot of swing and miss, right? But that's a guy that if you develop him, you're not regretting taking Andrew Pickney for under slot in the fourth round and reaching for him a little bit. And even Dugas, like, sure, he doesn't profile as necessarily a surefire big leaguer like some of his teammates at, at LSU, but he's a guy who's played a lot of baseball. He's played against the top of the competition competition across the country he's performed you need to take him to the next step and that's why i think the nationals really need to help you've seen elijah green struggle this year um obviously they james wood has been on fire but you can't get a yohani morales's talent and not learn how to develop him so they really need to figure out the developmental side of things but in terms of their decision makers they've done as good as anybody over the last two years really since they decided to rebuild post 2019 World Series. They ran it back for two years. They said, nah, we're washing this clean. They haven't made a bad trade. They really have not made a bad trade. They have not made a bad decision. They're doing a great job at the top of the draft. Now they got to get the right people in there. They got to go nab some guys from the Dodgers, the Rays, the Orioles, and get them in their organization to help with that development side of things. Um, but let's turn to the more negative side of things. Obviously, we have to. Um, we probably enjoy this just as much. But I will say before we get into this, and I know Daniel agree with this sentiment, that I'm fired up for what a lot of teams are doing. I scroll through these teams' draft boards and seeing who they're taking, and yeah. I think there's a lot of teams that have done well. I mean, we didn't mention the Tampa Bay Rays. We didn't mention uh, the the. Blue Jays have done a great job. We didn't mention, obviously, the Dodgers. We always love what they are able to do. So there's more There's more teams that we felt were winners than losers. Those were just our main four winners. But there were two teams specifically that we felt like were losers. And the first one is the Oakland A's. Through the first three picks, and, and those are where you really get your superstar talents, felt like they reached, right? Jacob Wilson is a guy that, sure, if you fell in love with this profile, which we knew organizations were at some point, he struck out maybe five times this year, barely swings and misses. Sure, you could fall in love with that. He's going to stick at shortstop, bring you the defense, all the things like that. But again, we've talked about how many times the Oakland A's have drafted and, and acquired 4A talent. Right. These guys that are just like fringe talents that could play. Oh, yeah. Nick Allen can play shortstop, too. But can he hit? Can he hit? And Jacob Wilson has great bat to ball skills. But you're talking about that a guy with metal had low exit velocity numbers in a small conference. We're not talking about a guy who struggled to impact the baseball in the SEC. We're talking about a guy who's at Grand Canyon. Yes, he never swung a miss, but he averaged roughly mid eighties on his exit velocities. That's not going to cut it at the next level with wood. We're going to have to get hit wood in his hand and see him perform. You can't manipulate the baseball in, in professional baseball the way you can in college. Miles Naylor, who is obviously a huge talent. They took him at 39 and obviously that's on the fringes of the window that we were talking about where high school players were still being drafted. But 
high school talent wasn't falling off the board. If anything, people were avoiding high school talent. He was ranked 64, which again, the rankings mean nothing. If you trust your scouts and you trust the information, you go get the guy you like. But you're talking about a guy who was ranked 64 and taken 39, which brings us to Ryan Lasko, who's a guy that I saw live, tooled up, really good talent. He was ranked 89th and taken 41st. So at what point do you start to, like your rankings aren't matching up with the industry because MLB.com, Baseball America, all these draft boards that they, these teams use, trust me, it's off of the industry consensus. It's not off of their opinions. Sure, they dabble their opinions in it. If you're the outlier in an organization where we feel like a lot of organizations are doing well, you're probably in the wrong, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, they just continue to uh, – And when you're drafting in the top 10, you should be taking a shot at, at acquiring impact talent. I mean, when you're your first-round pick, it, it, it should be a shot at impact talent. And I understand it gets harder sometimes out of, outside of the top 10. And sometimes it doesn't work out when you're in the top 10 and you take a shot. And, and sure, Wyatt Langford, Walker Jenkins, maybe maybe they don't work out. Maybe Red Lauder doesn't. But all of those guys, you can see kind of a path for them being impact talent. And you look at Jacob Wilson and you don't. Like, in my mind, what's what's the ceiling for, for Jacob Wilson? It's a, it's a solid big ligger. And it's like that's what you're doing within the yeah. top 10, especially when you're an organization like that. What do you have to lose? What is what do the Oakland A's well, have to lose if they go and take a swing? They you know, they need take, to be a little go safer. Go take Red Lauder. Go take Noble Meyer. Go take. They need to be a little why? safer because they pick Kyle Kyler Murray in the first round. I guess, but like Tommy Troy and Matt Shaw are going to end up in a big league organization. They're not going to go play in the NFL. So take a shot on one of them too over a guy <laughs> like like Jacob Wilson. I don't know, but I, the next. The, the, Two losers, unfortunately, are Chase Dolander and Sean Sullivan. And these they're two really good college pitchers who have really good fastballs that play up in the zone, and they're going to go pitch for the Rockies uh, in Coors Field eventually one day where you don't want the opposing team to put the ball in the air and the Rockies continue to do head-scratching things. And, and I, I mean, at this point, it's hard to blame them because they just can't get out of their own way, kind of like the A's and um, – you know, you take these two guys, and unfortunately for those two, they're going into an organization who's never showed the propensity to really develop pitchers, um, and they continue to lean into the fact that it's because they they you know they're in Colorado, and that may be, and if so, then that's just a tough environment for those two. So, um, two guys that I really liked coming into the draft, unfortunately, both end up in Colorado. I guess I'm just happy that it wasn't Rhett Lauder, my favorite pitcher in the draft, who ended up there, but. Uh, Sean Sullivan was kind of the the thing he had to give away to get Rhett not there. Um, so that's a tough yeah, one and, for both of those guys, and Jack Mahoney too, a guy who's a was had a really good yeah. year for, for the Gamecocks. He ends up there too. Yeah, um, you're not wrong, and it's tough because it's nothing against Chase Dolander and Sean Sullivan, but it's the fact that you can't trust them to develop any talent, and you can't trust like flyball pitchers and cores just historically don't have success and. You can't even blame the Rockies for picking them because of the fact that what else are they going to do? Like they have to take flyers on pitchers at some point because they will never be a competitor until they can find pitchers who can pitch in cores. Like that is the only way for them to build a contender because they, they could find anybody to hit there, right? Like they just, they have, we have seen what the offensive impact is in that, in that environment and 
it's very easy. But when you have guys that are talented as John Gray, Herman Marquez, and and all those guys struggle year in and year out there, it's frustrating. And, and you worry about guys who are notoriously fly ball pitchers, both pitched in small parks and colleges, so they're used to giving up homers. And if their stuff can stay equivalent to what it was when they were on in college, I think they're talented enough to get swings and misses. I just don't trust the Rockies to develop them, quite frankly. Um, and I think that's the biggest one. And the last loser here before we get out of here is the Kansas City Royals. And the reason why, as we talked about earlier, obviously the San Diego Padres have had a lot of success taking high school talent. The Kansas City Royals, you have no track record of player development. None. Who have you developed recently? Like your big league rosters bear, your minor league systems bear. And you're going taking flyers on high ceiling guys. If anything, you should be like the A's and taking the safe picks. Try to get your major league team to be at least decent and potentially identify talent that can get there. I get there's a market inefficiency for high school talent. I get it because MLB organizations do not identify it. They don't want to take it. They're like Dan and I saying, I wouldn't take it. I'm sure there are some organizations out there that won't. You know, we haven't seen the Houston Astros take a ton of high school talents over the years. And and obviously those model forward organizations don't, but you're going all high school in an environment where it's the opposite of what everybody else is doing. And again, when if you're zigging when everybody else is zagging, you're probably the one who's going to be have success. But you have to develop that talent. So Blake Mitchell gets on on your in your organization, and he's a sweet swinging left handed hitting catcher who's up to ninety seven off the mound, freakishly athletic, can get in his squat, can move well. Obviously, has a double plus arm. Are you going to develop him to be the next Salvador Perez and take the reins from him when he's when he walks away? Or are you going to mess up his development like you've seen to mess up with a lot of guys, right? And they just have not developed. I mean, they've taken we, – we saw Brady Singer take a step forward. He takes a step backwards. MJ Melendez takes a huge step backwards. And Vinny Pasquantino was hurt, but he was struggling before the year. We haven't seen Bobby Witt come to fruition. And who in their minor league system is even worth mentioning at this point in time? It's not a smart decision to go high ceiling, high variance players. Sure, if one of them hits, you're going to be very excited, but you need to raise your floor of your organization worse than bad. Them and the A's did the opposite of what I imagined. The A's have a high floor, and it's a high floor of being bad, but they have so many prospects that are just right on the fringes that it works. The Royals don't have that. They have nothing up there at the top. They have no 4A talent. They haven't made any moves recently to acquire 4A talent. They're not interested in trading Salvador Perez. They have no pieces to trade. Their farm system stinks. Their major league team stinks. And they go and take a bunch of high school talent that could have high ceilings, but there's no guarantees with high school talents that they're even going to be somewhat successful. So that was just really weird from my perspective. Not anything on the guys they picked. I'm sure they're all great talents, but you have to show the track record of development if you're going to take shots on those guys. Yeah, they're 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 in the same boat as the A's, and they just don't get talked about as much. But I mean, and and you know, JJ Piccolo just took over, and and he's got a he's got a tough job to do because, as you said, when you're that bad to have your farm system be that bare. It's tough, and and um, yeah, I mean, I don't, they're not even huge upside swings. And to your point, it just makes no sense when you haven't developed anyone to take young guys. It, it's yeah, not good. 
Well, just a damper to leave the podcast on, but obviously it's All-Star Week this week, um, and we'll, we'll try to figure out a schedule this week to make sure that we produce as, as much content as possible. But with no baseball, we obviously already covered the draft in two separate episodes. We'll try to see where we can line up, um, talking about bringing people on to recap the draft, obviously talking more detail, you know, the people that cover the draft. So we're reaching out, trying to set those those opportunities up. So maybe one of those coming later in the week and obviously or preview the second half and, and get into a little bit of MVP, or MVP, a little second half conversation, MLB content, man, MVP conversation. <laughs> Interesting thought process there. But um, Dan, any closing thoughts before we let our listeners get out of here? No, enjoy the uh, all-star break. Everybody go watch uh, Pete Alonzo compete in his Super Bowl tonight in the Home Run Derby. He cares more about this than winning the pennant. So uh, make sure you tune in. Mets fans. Dang. Um, One of our Mets fan listeners out there, go back, check when the episode was, and I want somebody to to tweet at us when we post this podcast of what Francisco Lindor's numbers are since Dan claimed he is the 10th best shortstop in the MLB. I think he's been hitting somewhere around 370 with power and showing elite defense. And it's really been interesting to see how Dan apparently kickstarted Francisco Lindor's second half of the season by calling him the 10th best shortstop in the league with O'Neill Cruz, who's played a total of 35 games. <laughs> ahead of him but we will uh we will we will talk about that in the second half preview episode but thank you to our listeners for tuning in as that will episode or conclude our episode for today obviously the draft content was super fun and hopefully be bringing a little bit more of that side of things as we continue forward make sure you subscribe into the podcast on all podcast platforms including apple spotify and anywhere you find your pods we post monday episodes every monday wednesday and friday always hitting your feet at 7 a.m sharp don't forget to follow us on twitter at backside gb instagram at backside ground balls and tiktok at backside ground ball and most importantly make sure you're sharing with five friends and we'll see you next time on the backside ground balls podcast great news major league baseball is back the college baseball season continues to electrify and with the help of our friends over at seat geek we can get you out to whatever game you want to see. All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek, find your game you want to go to, and enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to get $20 off your first purchase. Maybe you want to go see some NBA or NHL playoffs. I don't know. Maybe you want to go to a concert with the weather warming up throughout the country. No matter what event you're looking to go to, our friends at SeatGeek can hook you up with the best deals. Great seats at an affordable price. You can't beat it. Make sure to enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL for $20 off. That's SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL.